Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. You'll find us on the internet at salvationbygrace.org. We are currently studying the book of the prophet Jeremiah. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. One of the nicknames that Jeremiah has been given through the years is the weeping prophet. Tonight we're going to see some indication of why he got that nickname. So Jeremiah agrees with us all these years, or we agree with him, or we all agree with God. We agree that God is sovereign. We agree that life goes the way God determines that it's going to go. And if I know anything from all these years on the planet that I've accumulated so far, I know that I'm not in control. And I'm just glad to know that someone is. But one of the ways that I know for sure that I'm not in control is that things that I would never choose for myself, things that I would never want to have happen, have happened. The things that I would really like to have happen didn't always happen. So clearly it's not up to me. It's up to God. And so Jeremiah is going to admit here in chapter 20, He's going to admit that God is indeed absolutely sovereign, but that it's hard, that it's difficult, that it's painful, so painful, in fact, that Jeremiah is going to rue the day that he was even born and say that it would have been better if he had just died in his mother's womb. That would have been better than going through all the things that he had to go through. And we're about to start getting in the book of Jeremiah here some sense of the things that Jeremiah actually did suffer and the way that people reacted to him. Now, chapter 20 is a continuation of chapter 19, so I hope you remember at least some of what we talked about last week. But if we pick up in chapter 19 around verse 15, you'll see the connection between chapter 19 and chapter 20, because it's a continuing narrative. The end of chapter 19, verse 15 says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I am about to bring on this city and all its towns the entire calamity that I have declared against it, because they have stiffened their necks so as not to heed my words." Jeremiah said that while standing in the house of God, while standing in the temple. That's what verse 14 tells us, that after Jeremiah came from Topheth, where the Lord had sent him to prophesy, that he stood in the court of the Lord's house, and he said to all the people there. So he's announcing to everybody the judgment of God that is forthcoming. Now, the prophets, the other prophets of God, and even the priests of God there in the temple, had been giving the people a constant diet of lies. 
had been promising them that they were going to be okay, that God was going to take care of them. And so Jeremiah was like the odd man out here. He was the only one announcing what was true, but announcing the judgment of God. And that made him very unwelcome in the temple. And that's the beginning of chapter 20, verse 1. Because there was this priest named Pashur, the son of Immer, and he was the chief officer in the house of the Lord. And he heard Jeremiah saying those things, prophesying those things. So Pashur had Jeremiah the prophet beaten and put him in the stocks that were in the upper Benjamin gate, which was by the house of the Lord. Now, if that seems a little extreme for a priest to do, this was actually fairly standard practice there in the temple, but it was also directed very specifically at Jeremiah. We haven't gotten to Jeremiah 29 yet, but keep your finger there in chapter 20. Turn forward nine chapters to chapter 29. And we're going to start reading at verse 24. And to Shemaiah, the Nehalamite, you shall speak, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, because you have sent letters in your own name to all the people who are in Jerusalem, and to Zephaniah, the son of Maasiah, the priest, and to all the priests, saying, okay, this is the letter that this priest has sent out to all the priests, he wrote, the Lord has made you priest instead of Jehoiada, the priest, to be the overseer in the house of the Lord over every madman who prophesies to put him in the stocks and in the iron collar. And so this was fairly standard practice. There was always somebody in the temple whose job it was to keep down the rabble. And that's the way they're treating Jeremiah, like he's one of the madmen who are prophesying. And so they have the stocks available to them. But you will also notice that in this letter, Jeremiah is specifically pointed out. Verse 27 says, since that is your job, since you are an overseer in the house of the Lord over all the madmen who prophesy, now then, why have you not rebuked Jeremiah of Anathoth, who prophesies to you. For he has sent to us in Babylon, saying, The exile will be long. Build houses and live in them and plant gardens and eat your produce. So since Jeremiah is prophesying all these bad things, and because you're in charge of security, why haven't you gone after Jeremiah yet and set him up in the stocks in a more permanent fashion. So this is Jeremiah back in chapter 20. This is Jeremiah's first encounter with these stocks that were available there in the temple, specifically for madmen who were prophesying. And so Pashur the priest, the son of Emmer, who was the chief officer in the house of the Lord, his job was to keep the rabble down. He heard Jeremiah prophesying these things. Pashur had Jeremiah the prophet beaten and put him in the stocks that were in the upper Benjamin gate, which was by the house of the Lord. 
Then it came about on the next day that Pashur released Jeremiah from the stocks, and Jeremiah said to him, Pashur is not the name that the Lord has called you. That's really interesting. Now, if he's a madman, this doesn't matter. But if it's actually God talking to him, God has just identified Pashur as an individual, as a person, called him by name, and gave him a new name. And the new name that he has called you is Magor Misabib, which means terror on every side. Now, this phrase, terror on every side, is not unique to just this passage. What it indicates is a time of trouble that is so consuming that everywhere you look, in every direction, you're going to be terrified by it. And actually, David uses that phrase back in the Psalms. In Psalm 31, 9, David writes, Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am in distress. My eye is wasted away from grief, my soul and body also. For my life is spent with sorrow and my years with sighing. My strength has failed because of my iniquity and my body has wasted away. Because of all my adversaries, I have become a reproach, especially to my neighbors. And I have become an object of dread to my acquaintances. Those who see me in the street flee from me. I am forgotten as a dead man, out of mind. I am like a broken vessel. For I have heard the slander of many. Terror is on every side while they take counsel together against me and they scheme to take away my life. So David describes his situation as he's looking around and even his neighbors, his friends have abandoned him, very similar to what Jeremiah is going to say is happening to him. And David's description of it is that same phrase, this terror on every side. Now you'll notice that the name that Pashur was called was Magor Misabib. Magor means terror. And in every one of these verses we're about to look at, that word, Magor, terror, is used consistently. And then where you find the word Misabib, which means everywhere on all sides, it's slightly different in David's writing and in some of the other passages we're going to see where it's Magor Saviv, which means all around, every side, means the same essential thing. But that phrase, terror on every side, is a descriptive phrase for a time of trouble brought about by God in order to correct his people through genuine terror. So we go back to the beginning question. Is God still sovereign? Yeah. Does God also predict terror for some people? all-consuming terror, terror everywhere you look, and is he still sovereign when he does that? Well, the answer is yes. And that is going to be kind of the foundation of Jeremiah's emotional breakdown at the end of this chapter as he wrestles with the sovereignty of God and the reality of his situation. Terror on every side. Micah, if you would... Look up Jeremiah 6. You're going to read verses 22 to 25. If you would, Tom, you're going to read Jeremiah 
go forward 46, 2 to 5. Feel like reading? Sure. Okay. If you'll go to Jeremiah 49 and read verses 28 and 29, all of these passages use that phrase, terror on every side, proving that this is not unique to God just calling Pashur terror on every side. It's a phrase that God employs regularly to describe a time of just absolute frightening circumstances. Jeremiah 6, verses 22 to 25, Micah. Thus says the Lord, Behold, a people is coming from the north country. A great nation is stirring from the farthest parts of the earth. They lay hold of the bow and javelin. Uh, they are cruel and have no mercy. The sound of them is like the roaring sea. They ride on horses set in array as a man for battle against you, O daughter of Zion. We have heard the report of it. Our hands fall helpless. Anguish has taken hold of us. Pain as a woman in labor. Go not out into the field, nor walk in the road. For the enemy has a sword. Tears on every side. Tears on every side. So don't even leave the city walls. And he uses words like anguish is out there. Because I'm bringing down an army from the north who has all the weaponry they need, and they're going to come down, and they're going to destroy you. And everywhere you look, you're going to see terror. So that was predicted back in Jeremiah 6. It's going to come up again in the description of what actually has happened when Babylon came down on Jerusalem. That's going to be Jeremiah 46. You're going to read verses 2 to 5, Tom. About Egypt, concerning the army of Pharaoh Necho, king of Egypt, which was by the river Euphrates at Karchemish, which Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, defeated in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah. Prepare buckler and shield and advance for battle. Harness the horses, mount, O horsemen. Take your stations with your helmets. Polish your spears. Put on your armor. Why have I seen it? They are dismayed and have turned backwards. Their warriors are beaten down and they have fled in haste. They look not back. Terror on every side, declares the Lord. Terror on every side. This is when Babylon is going to come down on Egypt. It is a prophecy against Egypt that they are also going to be crushed by Babylon. And God yanks out the exact same phrase. There's going to be terror on every side. Luann, Jeremiah 49, verses 28 and 29. Concerning Kedar and the kingdoms of Hazor, which Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, attacked, this is what the Lord says, Arise and attack Kedar and destroy the people of the east. Their tents and their flocks will be taken. Their shelters will be carried off with all their goods and camels. Men will shout to them, Terror on every side. And men will yell to them, there's terror on every side. And so this is phraseology that God continues to use to describe the warfare that he's in charge of, he's sovereign, but it is such a complete destruction of these various cities and these various kingdoms that the only way it can best be described is just terror everywhere you look, terror on every side. Well, Jeremiah continues writing and is responsible for the book of Lamentations. 
And in the lamentations, as he is lamenting the destruction of his beloved Jerusalem, he's going to use that phrase again in Lamentations 2, starting at verse 20. Jeremiah says, See, O Lord, and look, with whom have you dealt thus? Should women eat their offspring, the little ones who were born healthy? Should priest and prophet be slain in the sanctuary of the Lord? What's he describing? He's describing terrible events. There's no way to call mothers eating their babies anything other than terrible. The slaughter of the priests right in the sanctuary, the holy place of the Lord. Well, that, that's just terrible. Verse 21, on the ground in the streets lie Bodies, dead bodies, young and old. My virgins, those are the young girls, and my young men have all fallen by the sword. You have slain them in the day of your anger. You have slaughtered, not sparing them. You called to them as in the day of the appointed feast, and you said, my terrors on every side. And there was no one who escaped or survived in the day of the Lord's anger. Those whom I bore and reared, my enemy annihilated them. So the language of annihilation, of the Lord's anger, of slaughter, of dead bodies in the street, the destruction of the temple, the killing of the priests, and such overt desperation that they end up eating their young just as God predicted they were going to do. That's just terrible. There's no other word for it, and yet God here takes responsibility for it. It's terror on every side because it's more than just human beings demonstrating their own anger against each other. It is God pouring out his vengeance, his anger, and bringing about terror. Is he still sovereign? Yes. Yeah, but that's the God of the Bible, the God who is able to judge, the God who is able to pour out his vengeance and anger, the God who is perfectly comfortable with the language of grace and redemption and perfectly comfortable bringing terror against those who resist him. And so in chapter 20 of Jeremiah, Pashur, who would probably be familiar with that phraseology, seeing that it is something that David has already used, came about the next day when Pashur released Jeremiah from the stocks that Jeremiah said to him, Pashur is not the name that the Lord has called you, but rather he calls you Magor Misabib, terror on every side. And now here's why he called you that, verse 4, for thus says Yahweh, Behold, I am going to make you a terror to yourself and to all your friends. And while your eyes look on, they, your friends, will fall by the sword of their enemies. You're going to see your family and friends destroyed right in front of you. There's going to be terror on every side. And so I shall give over all Judah to the hand of the king of Babylon, and he will carry them away as exiles to Babylon, and he will slay them with the sword. And I shall also give over all the wealth of this city, all its produce and all of its costly things, 
even all the treasures of the kings of Judah, I shall give over to the hands of their enemies, and they will plunder them, and they will take them away, and they will bring them to Babylon. Now that, by the way, is something that was predicted well before all of these events. We've talked about it in the previous weeks, but turn back for just a second. Again, keep your finger there in Jeremiah. Go back to 2 Kings 20 for just a moment. 2 Kings chapter 20, I'm going to start reading at verse 12. Hezekiah, the king of Judah, had just been sick, and he had just been revived. And Isaiah the prophet cried to the Lord, and he brought the shadow of the stairway back 10 steps. That's when that miracle of the longer day was demonstrated to show Hezekiah that he was going to be healed. Verse 12, at that time, Baradak Baladan, the son of Baladan, the king of Babylon, sent letters and a present to Hezekiah, for he heard that Hezekiah had been sick. Now notice that the king of Babylon hears that the king of Israel has been sick and is bringing the king of Israel presents. That's the kind of authority that Jerusalem once had in the Middle East that the other foreign kings brought gifts when they heard that the king of Jerusalem had been ill. And Hezekiah listened to them and showed them all his treasure house, the silver and the gold and the spices and all the precious oil and the house of his armor and all that was found in his treasures. There was nothing in his house nor in all his dominion that Hezekiah did not show them. And then Isaiah the prophet came to King Hezekiah and said to him, What did these men say, and from where have they come to you? Hezekiah said, They have come from the far country, from Babylon. And he said, What have they seen in your house? So Hezekiah answered, They have seen all that is in my house. There is nothing among my treasures that I have not shown them. And then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, hear the word of the Lord. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and all that your fathers have laid up in store to this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And some of your sons who shall issue from you, whom you shall beget, shall be taken away, and they shall become officials in the palace of the king of Babylon." And then Hezekiah said to Isaiah, the word of the Lord which you have spoken is good, because he thought, is it not so, if there shall be peace and truth in my days? So what he heard was, well, it's going to happen someday to your sons. And he's thinking, yeah, but my life's going to be fine. I'll be good. Okay, so part of that prophecy from Isaiah is that all the wealth of Jerusalem is going to be taken into Babylon. Now we go forward to the book of Jeremiah. We're talking about a few hundred years passing. God has not forgotten that he already told Hezekiah that that was going to happen. And now here Jeremiah reaffirms that when talking to Pashur in the temple. Verse 5, I shall also give over all the wealth of this city all its produce and all of its costly things, even all the treasures of the kings of Judah, I shall give over into the hand of their enemies, and they will plunder them 
and take them away and bring them, what a surprise, to Babylon. Because way back at Hezekiah, God said, that's what I'm going to do. God remembers it, and now he's going to do it. So here's a principle. Does the fact that a hundred years have passed, does that change the intention of God once he says he's going to do something? Does that change anything? Because, you know, during those years, maybe attitudes changed. Maybe approaches, political approaches, religious approaches. Maybe things had changed. Maybe cultural things had happened. But God, who doesn't change, is still going to keep the exact promise that he made that all of the wealth of Jerusalem was going to go to Babylon. How do we apply that to our day? Well, God has said that certain things that are abominable to him are going to be judged. But some time has gone by and he hasn't done it. Does that mean he's not going to? No. It means he's still going to because he remembers that he said it. Yeah, but times have changed. People have changed. Culture has changed. Now there's the LGBTQ plus movement. And that's, that's what the society is all about now. God doesn't care. He has already said this is the kind of behavior that he sees as rebellious and that he's going to judge it. Has the fact that people have been getting away with it for several generations now, this kind of perversion that has overtaken the Western world, does that change the mind of God? Well, no, absolutely not. You have a demonstration of it right here when you look at Isaiah and Jeremiah. You see God saying it, waiting for a while, and then ultimately accomplishing it. Because even to the details, God knows what it is he has said, what he's prophesied, and what it is that he's going to do. And that includes bringing about terror on every side. He just hasn't yet. So smart people would wise up and say, you know, God has a history of doing this. He's already demonstrated that this is what he's like and this is how he acts. Judgment is coming. Terror is coming for all of his enemies. And he does not forget that he said he's going to do it. And you, says verse 6, and you, Pashur, and all who live in your house will go into captivity and you will enter Babylon, and there you will die. And there you will be buried, you and all your friends. Notice this phrase, all your friends to whom you have falsely prophesied. So apparently this Pashur has been a false prophet. He's been assuring the people that God is on their side and that God is going to protect them. And so you can see why he has a vested interest in shutting Jeremiah up because if Jeremiah is a true, genuine prophet, he's saying the absolute opposite of what Pashur had been saying. So if Jeremiah is correct, then Pashur is demonstrated to be wrong. And so he wants Jeremiah to be seen as a madman, which is why he put him in stocks right there by the Lord's house, right there in the temple, so that everybody passing by could see him put in the stocks, and they would know that that indicates that he's a prophetic madman. So he's trying to cancel Jeremiah. He's trying to destroy Jeremiah's reputation and to do it very publicly. I like that Jeremiah did not back down but instead said, oh, you think you're something? 
I got news for you. God named you and named you terror on every side because you're going into Babylon and you're going to be buried there. You and all your friends, all your family that you lied to by saying, thus says the Lord, when God did not say it. Okay, so that's the first half of chapter 20. Starting at verse 7, we get this sense of the weeping prophet crying out to God. Now, I've been stressing so far tonight God's sovereignty because that is going to come up in the lament that Jeremiah is putting forward. But Jeremiah, you can tell from the words here, he's in pain. After being publicly humiliated and put in stocks, his own friends and family, everybody's turning against him, and he realizes that it is the sovereignty of God that has put him in this very situation that he's in. And so in verse 7, the NASB says, O Lord, Thou hast deceived me, and I was deceived. That word in the Hebrew is patha. It's sometimes a word that means to be simple-minded. It's a word that is also sometimes translated allure, or to entice, or to become enticed. It's also translated persuaded, and also prevailed. So it's a word with a pretty wide berth, the translators just decided to go with the word deceived here, but the idea that Jeremiah is going to put forward here is, I didn't get an option in what I'm going through. In fact, if you would now, Steve, go back and look up Jeremiah 1.5. All those weeks ago in our introduction to Jeremiah, we looked closely at that verse because Jeremiah recognizes that it is God who has put him in this position and if I'm going to try to bring this idea up to date and make it current, so many folk who enter the ministry think that just because they're serving God in the ministry, that that means things are going to go good for them, that they deserve better things, that they deserve to be well taken care of, that they deserve to, to be healthy and wealthy, and, and that they just deserve that because they're God's servant. Jeremiah here, who is a servant right from the womb, the one that God himself chose, put him into this prophetic ministry, and all it's brought him is pain. And so Jeremiah is saying, I didn't get an option here. I'm going through all of this because of your sovereignty. You allured me. You drew me in. You enticed me. You persuaded me. And so I'm doing this for you. And it's painful. And it's hard. And then he's also going to say, and you're in charge. So, Steve, read Jeremiah 1.5 for us. And this is the Lord speaking to Jeremiah, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Before you were born, while you were still in the womb, I appointed you and made you a prophet to the nations. Jeremiah knows that. It's written down in the book that bears his name. He knows that God chose him from the womb for this exact life. And yet it's a painful, difficult, unrewarding life that he's living. 
O Lord, you have persuaded, deceived. You've enticed me, and I became enticed because you have overcome me, and you have prevailed over me. And I have become a laughingstock all day long. Everyone mocks me. That's exactly what happened while he was in the stocks in the temple. In the center of Jerusalem, everybody goes to the temple. And what did they see there for 24 hours? They saw Jeremiah in the stocks. And when people were in the stocks, they were meant to be mocked and laughed at and spit at. I've become a laughingstock all day long. Everyone mocks me. For every time I speak, I cry aloud, and I proclaim violence and destruction. That's what God assigned him to do. His particular prophetic ministry was all about destruction, violence, terror on every side. God, this is what you've sent me to tell people. This has not made me popular. This has made people hate me because for me, The word of the Lord has resulted in reproach and derision all day long. He recognizes it's the word of the Lord. He recognizes that it is God who has set him in this particular prophetic ministry and told him what it is he's supposed to say. But he's the only one who's preaching bloodshed and destruction and terror while everybody else, like Pashur, is out there reassuring the people, no, no, listen to me, you're going to be fine, God's going to be God's going to take care of you. It's all going to be okay. And so because of the word of the Lord, Jeremiah has become a reproach and a derision all day long. So what's he going to do? Is he going to quit? I mean, I've certainly reached the point a few times in my life where I went, that's enough. I'm done. I have to quit. I can't can't keep this up. Can't keep doing it. Look at me. Here I stand. Yeah, little gnat like me shaking my fist at God, you know. Okay, I'm not going to do it. And God's like, get back in there. Dust yourself off and get to work. So verse 9 is about that very thing. But if I say I will not remember God or speak anymore in his name, if I quit, then in my heart it becomes like a burning fire. It's shut up in my bones And I am weary of holding it in, and I cannot endure it. In other words, Jeremiah has no choice but to say it. He has to go and do it, even knowing that he's going to end up a reproach and a derision and a laughingstock among everybody when he tries to quit, when he tries to bottle it up. It burns inside him until he can't contain it, and he has to go and say what God told him to say. Because God is, what's that word? Sovereign. Because God's in charge, Jeremiah has to keep doing it despite the pain of it. Verse 10, for I have heard the whispering of many. And now he applies that phrase to himself, terror on every side. Jeremiah says, my own life and ministry now, everywhere I look, everyone is against me. Everybody wants to do me in. There is terror on every side. And people say, denounce him. Yes, let us denounce him. All my trusted friends are watching for my fall. And they say, perhaps he will be deceived. 
so that we may prevail against him and take our revenge on him. So they're really hoping that what Jeremiah has been saying isn't going to come true. And then if it doesn't come true, they can be done with him. They can prevail against him. They can take their revenge on him. We've hated you this long. We haven't been able to touch you yet. But if you're proven to be a false prophet, then we have it by the regulations of the law that we get to destroy you. We get to stone you. We get to drive you out. We get rid of you. And so his friends, his trusted friends, are watching for his failure and saying perhaps he'll be deceived. Perhaps what he's saying won't be true so that we'll prevail against him and we'll take our revenge on him. Okay, so Jeremiah has just described his situation. Terror on every side. Even his trusted friends have turned against him. Where is he going to go for comfort? Where is he going to go for help? Well, that's verse 11. But the Lord is with me like a dreaded champion, and therefore my persecutors will stumble and not prevail. They will be utterly ashamed because they have failed with an everlasting disgrace that will not be forgotten. So he's confident that the God of Israel, who has given him these words, who has chosen him from the womb, that that God is going to protect him despite the difficulty, the terrors of the life that he is having to endure at this point. He again reverts back to the only place you can revert to. He reverts back to God's sovereign. God's in charge. God's putting me through this, but he's also going to fight for me. If I'm going to endure, if I'm going to live, if I'm not going to be overcome, it has to be by his strength. He has to do it. And boy, I like that phrase, the Lord is a dread champion. He's the one that's going to fight for him. Verse 12, yet, O Lord of hosts, thou who dost test the righteous, who seest the mind and the heart, let me see thy vengeance on them, for to thee I have set forth my cause. So his whole complaint, starting at verse 7, was him putting his cause in front of God and saying, I, I'm terrified. I'm surrounded by enemies. I'm a laughingstock. I'm, I don't know how much longer I can go on, and yet what am I going to do? I can't quit. When I try to quit, it grows up like a fire in my belly. I have to say these words. I'm completely under your control because you're absolutely sovereign, and yet people are trying to destroy me. That's my cause, and now I have laid my cause out in front of you. And so I'm asking that you will take vengeance on my behalf and that I will get to see you take vengeance on them. And then, having turned to the Lord, suddenly he bursts into praise, recognizing the sovereign, his protector, the one who put him to this job. He then says in verse 13, sing to the Lord. Praise the Lord. That seems very out of character from the beginning of this lament. But he got his eyes off his own complaining, got his eyes off of his own terror and pain and being a laughingstock, got his eyes off himself, and instead got his eyes back on God, the Lord of hosts, and declares, sing to the Lord, praise the Lord, 
for he has delivered the soul of the needy one from the hands of the evildoers. Now, it would have been great if he had just stopped there. We would have said, well done, Jeremiah. You, you turned from yourself and your own persecutions and difficulties and fleshly wants and turned to the God who is sovereign and you praised and worshiped him. Good, just shut your mouth. You're good there. Just stop right there. But the lament is real. The pain is real. And Jeremiah cannot help but continue on. And he says, verse 14, Cursed be the day when I was born. Let that day not be blessed when my mother bore me. Cursed be the man who brought the news to my father, saying, A baby boy has been born to you, and made him very happy. But let that man be like the cities which the Lord overthrew without relenting. And let him hear an outcry in the morning and a shout of alarm at noon. Don't let that man have any rest. That man who announced my birth, bring curses down on him. Because, verse 17, because he did not kill me before my birth. So that my mother would have been my grave and her womb ever pregnant. Why did I ever come forth from the womb? Well, because of exactly what Steve just read us. Because God knew him in the womb, determined him to be a prophet to the nations from his mother's belly, and God is absolutely sovereign, and there's nothing Jeremiah can do about it. And the contrast here is just enormous as you read through it. There's the admission, you are sovereign. I have no choice. You're taking me through this. You have prevailed over me. And I have no, I'm a laughingstock and I'm terrified and I'm in pain. And even my close friends want me dead. This is not an enjoyable ministry you've got me in, but I can't do anything about it. All I can do is describe my situation to you. And my situation is, it would be better if I had just not been born. If I had just not been born, I wouldn't have had to live through all of this. And that in the face of, yeah, but you're sovereign. Yeah, there's nothing I can really do about it. I find that so intriguing, so fascinating. Because, yes, God's sovereign. We all agree with that. That's where I began tonight. Is God sovereign? Yes, absolutely. But is that a guarantee that you're never going to go through trouble or pain? No. He's still sovereign in the trouble and the pain. How are you going to endure it? How are you going to get through it? Well, he's sovereign, and he's going to get you through it. And you've got nowhere else to run when you're really in pain, when you're really agonizing physically or emotionally. Where are you going to run? You don't run to Steve. Where are you going to run? You're going to run to God. There's nowhere else to go. He's cornered you. You have to go to the sovereign one. And then we're told to bring all our petitions before the Lord, to do it with thanksgiving, but to tell him. And so it's perfectly valid that Jeremiah went to God and said, this is hard. And then he lists all the difficulties that he's going through, even to the point of saying, it would be better if I wasn't born, but you're sovereign. But you're in charge, and I got nowhere else to go but, but you. 
And you deserve worship, and you deserve praise, and you deserve singing, and I don't deserve any of that. It's just me, a worm down here crying out in my agony. But you're sovereign, and there's not a whole lot any of us can do about it. So he's going to take us through what he's going to take us through. I've heard myself more than once say to God, what is this about? (laughs) Why are we doing this? And then when it's over, I think, well, if that had to happen, I'm glad I got through that. I'm glad that's over. Let's move on to the next thing. But I know the next thing is coming because he's sovereign. And I have the experience of knowing that he's going to get me through it and that it's going to be uncomfortable. And there's going to be pain and there's going to be difficulty. And so I think we can all learn from Jeremiah here. His lament is real. His pain is real. His, he's been put in stocks. Anybody here spent 24 hours in stocks with people laughing at you and spitting at you? Anybody done that yet lately? No. I mean, his lament is genuine. And yet in the midst of it, he cannot help but turn back to, but I don't have a choice here. You prevailed over me. You're sovereign. You're in charge. You gave me these words to say, and I can't help but say them. Why did I ever come forth from the womb, says verse 18, to look on trouble and sorrow so that my days have been spent in this shame? Now, typically... At the end of a message like that, I try to find some little bit of uplifting news right there at the end so I can send you out the door feeling like, yeah, but, you know, God's good in his sovereignty. And there's really nothing happy or pleasant about Jeremiah's lament there. But I think it's so educational. The pain that Jeremiah is going through is real. The pain that Jeremiah had to deal with, the betrayal of his friends and family, everything he went through, just difficult pain, agony, so much so that he would rather have not been born than to go through what he was going through. And yet I love the fact that in the middle of his lament to God, he had to admit, but you're sovereign, but you're in charge, and I have to do what you said I'm going to do. And so I'm going to pronounce your word, even if everybody hates it. So let's apply that to the day we live in. We're just going to keep announcing God's word, even if everybody hates it. Because we happen to live in a society and a time right now where people don't want to hear the word of God. And even in the modern church, you see them capitulating to the world and the way the world thinks. Some of the stuff I've been seeing online lately that's going on in the so-called church is absolutely abhorrent and anti-biblical, not just sub-biblical, but completely against the Bible. And I guess there's some attraction to the whole go-along-to-get-along kind of philosophy, but uh, not here, not while I'm breathing We're going to continue to say what God's word says. And if that makes us really unpopular, he's sovereign. 
comments, feedback. That's what you just read. Yeah. It's remarkable stuff. I, I just, I love that juxtaposition of this hurts. I wish I didn't have to do it, but it's not up to me. I love that. It doesn't seem as depressing as it maybe does relatable in the sense that we all know and believe God is sovereign, but yet we can still relate to those same feelings, the, the toil and sorrow that he's... What is the point? Why are we going through this? Well, we all can relate to that. We all have those feelings. Yeah. That we know. And aren't you glad that you can go to God and say things like that? Absolutely. And that he won't reject you for it. You're yeah. still, still his beloved. But you've got to go through the human experience. Yeah. But I think knowing that God is sovereign is the thing that helps me when I'm feeling depressed. Exactly right. Like it did for Jeremiah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah, knowing he's in charge is a great comfort. Yeah. It's amazing that he will hear prayers and not look at the sinner and say, who do you think you are? Get away from me. That we get to go and pray to the maker of the universe because of Jesus Christ. In his name, in his authority, we get to go cry, Abba, Father. How good is that? We not only get to pray, we're encouraged to pray. Yeah. The Almighty Sovereign. Yep. And he was one, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief that you know, knows what it is to be human and knows what it is to be that man of sorrows and suffering has experienced it. So it's not like we don't have a relatable intercessor. Yeah, exactly right. In all ways, tempted as we are and yet without sin. We have a high priest who can be touched with our infirmities. Mm-hmm. Yep. Anything else? Oh, well, we did get positive, didn't we? <laughs> oh, we did get positive right there at the end. Oh, good. <laughs> Listening to this week's Salvation by Grace midweek message. We encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for books, Q&As, and our ever-expanding archive of audio sermons. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.